the words of our mouth now and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I thought maybe I should start by explaining my tie. Since somebody asked me today whether it's Little Orphan Annie and why I would even wear this tie. And I realized that uh, not everybody keeps up with the cartoons of the day. Uh, but this is from the Dilbert cartoon. And I was thinking last night, if I'm going to spend the day talking about what it means to learn how to work in the workplace, Dilbert, none of those guys know what's going on. And it dawned on me that we, we are all, pardon me for saying this, a bunch of Dilberts. We haven't got the vaguest idea sometimes what our job is all about, what we've been called to do, and we just kind of muddle around like a bunch of dopey Dilberts. That's the tie. Okay. In addition, somebody sent me a tie this last week. I may use that at the proper time once I can figure out how to tie a bow tie. So, with that being said, next screen. I slipped in an extra slide for you, Matt. Many of you uh, have heard of Donald Trump's uh, television show, The Apprentice. Uh, it has run for 12 seasons in less than nine years, not including... Celebrity Apprentice. And I admit that I have not really watched much of that show. I'm not really a fan of it. Uh, but what I realized is in watching that show, it does not really follow what you would call an apprentice model. At least not the way Jesus would want to apprentice disciples, nor the way I would want to apprentice anybody. And from what I've seen, the show is, is really about Donald Trump taking a bunch of young protégés under his wing and not training them the way he should do that. In fact, what he really does is kind of throw them to the wolves, and so he has a chance to gather them in and say, you're fired. Now, in my humble opinion, the master-apprentice relationship should be a whole lot less hostile than that, like the relationship that we see and we're going to see for the next number of weeks between Paul and young Timothy. So today we start a, a, a brand new series. Uh, it's the study of 1 Timothy, and we're going to cover its six chapters in six weeks. And if you haven't read a whole book of the Bible lately, uh, you can either do it ahead of time or if you show up in church, because you're going to hear all six chapters, every verse read. And it's got some really interesting stuff. I'm already looking at chapter 3 where it says women ought to keep silent in the church. That sounds interesting. We're going to call this series Apprentice You. Let me give you a little background with this young guy, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young leader in a church uh, who had grown up with a godly mother and a godly grandmother, Lois and Eunice. Uh, he was probably in his 20s or 30s, although some people say he may have been still a teenager. But he found himself being the pastor at the church of Ephesus. Now, if you remember our last series preaching through the seven churches in Ephesus. Not a really great church because of some problems, but really a pretty big church. Now, Paul had a wonderful relationship with that church because he had served there as its, quote, founding pastor for a while. And so while there, Timothy was his disciple. He was his student. He would be what you'd call an apprentice. He was preparing him for the next step. So First Timothy, as Sue mentioned before, was written... Uh, to help this young man 
to become the leader that God had called him to. And so here Paul is dealing with a whole bunch of subjects that have to do with the church at Ephesus and some subjects that really have to do with all of us as we find ourselves members of the body of Christ and as we all find ourselves desiring to want to be bigger, better, greater disciples for Jesus Christ. Now, in everything Paul said, then, there there are principles we can learn about how to master life in such a way uh, that who we are and what we do kind of brings meaning and fulfillment into our lives and ultimately brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus. So, in these next six weeks, if you will, we're going to kind of listen in to Paul as he is mentoring young Timothy, and I can guarantee you that at no time is Paul going to say, you're fired. He's not going to say that. He will, however, challenge each and every one of us. And I'm talking about challenging myself and you. He's going to challenge you to set a very high uh, standard in several key areas of life. And I think you probably will enjoy the series. I know I've enjoyed reading First Timothy any number of times. I've enjoyed putting these messages together. Now, we're going to take a look at chapter 1 today, which is where Paul is talking about living a gospel-driven life. Now, the gospel-driven life is really what the Christian life is all about. So as we look at the prospect of being Paul's disciple or Paul's apprentice or a disciple of Christ, I want us to take a look at what this job really entails so we don't end up being a bunch of dumb Dilberts. So here's the very first thing. We need to understand it's all about living a life of love. Now, I don't know if you know what the difference is between Christianity and other religions. The answer is, it's love. What separates us from secular worldview is love. No other religion in the world, no other philosophy in the world places the premium on love that you find right here in God's Word. I mean, Jesus himself set the standard pretty high when he said that, the difference would be found in his followers. John 13:35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I read something earlier this morning that said that the, the worst testimony, and they said the reason that Christians are disliked by so many people today is because of their testimony, which is they love one another inside the church doors, but then hate each other outside in the parking lot. That's pretty tough stuff. We talk about love, but then we walk out into the community and we don't even act like it. We're rude to people at restaurants. We complain and gripe when people don't serve us as quickly as they think we should, because after all, we were here before the Baptist today, huh? Whatever. He said, you know, they're going to spot you, they're going to know you, and they're going to know you by how you love. See, love is also what separates good doctrine from bad doctrine. Uh, Love also is how you tell the difference between heresy and heretics because they tend to always work on secondary issues. On the other hand, true biblical doctrine always emphasizes love. Paul says here in verse 5 of our text, the goal of this command is love. So here in the religious marketplace, There are those who strive to make Christianity about a whole lot of different things. There are churches in America today, I'm sure, that are not talking about the love of Jesus Christ. 
they're probably talking about politics. Maybe they're preaching about self-help. Or maybe they're preaching doom and gloom about how the world is about to end and we ought to all, you know, do such and so. Some of them try to reduce the Christian life to simply knowing the right facts. Like, you've got to memorize Luther's small catechism. You need to know the books of the Bible in order. You've got to have these things down. Some structure what they're doing around detailed and complex theological systems that no one understands and kind of actually obscures all of the biblical understanding. Now, Paul says people who do this miss the point of the Christian life because the goal of the Christian life above and beyond anything else is very simply this, because Jesus first loved us, we love each other. Paul goes on and explains it in a broader context. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Now, you want to grow in love? You want to be a, a better lover? I mean, this is not a sex education class today, but you want to be a better lover? Very simply, a pure heart. Okay, what's a pure heart? That's a heart that wants to do one thing. It wants to see that God is glorified above and beyond everything. It needs to mean, it means to have a good conscience. Now, how do sinners like you and me get a good conscience? Well, your conscience is cleansed by receiving God's mercy, by making an effort, and when possible, to right past wrongs and make a commitment to live a holy life through the power of the Spirit. It comes through having a sincere faith that's built upon your personal experience, on your due diligence. It's not something that you've heard about from somebody else. It's something that you have made the effort to develop yourself. You will not get into heaven riding on anybody else's coattails. Just because Mama sat in the same pew for umpteen years, that's not getting you into heaven. As much as I would love to be able to share some of the faith that I have, though limited with other people, I can't do it. A sincere faith. Your faith. See, when your faith is sincerely your faith, not just what you learn to parrot, when your conscience is made good through God's mercy and through a longing for holiness, when your heart is focused only on giving God glory, then you're going to be empowered to love other people and to love God fully and completely. That's the very first priority of the Christian life. Let me say it again. Because God loved us so much. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? God loved us so much. But this is what he did, and he says, now, if you're really my followers, love me, give glory to me, but love other people. Aren't those the first two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourselves. You know, who's your neighbor? Might be sitting next to you. Might be living in the same house. Might be living next door, around the block. So it's all about love. Here's the second thing. It's about living a life based on mercy. Verses 13 and 14 said, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a believer today, if you say, if I said, you know, anybody here believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christ follower, 
I want to tell you, you should still never, ever lose sight of the fact that you are still products of God's mercy. There is absolutely no other way to say that. What I'm saying is that you are an evil, wicked, (laughs) bad and nasty, horrible sinner, and God left you off the hook even when you did not deserve to be let off the hook. In Psalm 103, David said, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. In other words, Jesus lets us off the hook. And because of this, we ought to let other people off the hook as well. Or put it another way, man, folks, we need to start cutting some people some slack. We need to be willing to show other people that same mercy that we have received. I mean, Paul openly admits that he is, he is no better than anybody else. In fact, you know, as we study the life of Paul in the book of Acts, he says he's actually worse than anybody else. He called himself the chief of sinners. He said, I'm the worst of the bunch. Now, the truth is, I think he only said that because he never met me or you. But I think you get the point. Paul is saying that our lives are built on mercy. So there's two really good reasons to show mercy. One is we show mercy to others because we've received it. Colossians says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Secondly, we show mercy because we need mercy. In the Bible, it also says his mercies are new every morning. No leftovers. Brand new mercy every day. Blessed are the merciful, it says, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if you pay any attention to the news, and I'm not going to get political here on you, but uh, there's so much stuff in the news recently where people who are outside the church think the Christian life is all about judging and condemning and looking down on other people or other people groups or whatever. But to be honest, there are some people that are in the church that think the same way, but that's not what life is all about. It's all about mercy. I read a quote this last week by Rick Warren, who pastors one of the largest churches in America today. And he said, our culture has accepted two lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both of those statements are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You just learn to extend the same mercy to other people that God in his mercy has extended to you. Here's the third thing. It's about living a life in pursuit of transformation. Paul says here again, verses 12 and 13, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now, the really key word here is that little word, once. Once. It's a reference to his past. Paul was able to look at who he used to be. Anybody understand what that's about? Anybody, can any of you look at your life and say, man, I used to be this way, but I'm not this way anymore. I mean, a lot of us can say that. He can now see a difference. Once, he said, I was a blasphemer. Now, I'm appointed to God's service. 
Once he said he was a persecutor. Now he was a servant of the church. Once he was a violent man. Now he's a proponent of the gospel of love and showing mercy. You know, Paul is probably one of Scripture's greatest examples of God's transforming power. And again, I mean, I, I, I know a number of you here. Uh, I've heard your stories before, and I know kind of like where you've been and where you are today. And you are also living, breathing examples of God's transform, transforming power. But I just want you to listen to what Paul says about what happened in his life. Verses 15 and 16. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. See, when Paul talks about salvation, he's not just talking about having a ticket to heaven. He's talking about a changed life. He's not just talking about avoiding the punishment of hell. He's talking about being saved from the chains of the past, being saved from the person you used to be, and now changed into the person that God wants you to be. I mean, I I, I still remember when we went back for my high school 25th reunion, and the Kids in my class and I said, I went to a Lutheran high school. They were absolutely dumbfounded that of all people in our class, that I was a pastor. The public school was actually having its reunion at the same time. They came over to see whether it was true. <laughs> you know, somewhere along the line, something changed. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, God got a hold of me. That's what changed things here. Someone once uh, summarized the Christian life like this. I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. See, the Christian life, and I don't care if you've been a pew plopper here for years, you still ought to be in the process of being transformed, be better day by day. I mean, our prayer always ought to be, God help me be more like Jesus than I was yesterday. That's a good prayer for all of us to pray. God help me be more like Jesus than I was yesterday. And a difficult thing sometimes for Christians to accept is that transformation or a changed life is a process. It is not an instantaneous event. I mean, I've had people come and see me in my office and say, Man, pastor, my life is this and this and this and this, and I so desperately want to change. Can you pray for me so that I'll be changed? And I sometimes think what they want is a presto changeo wave a magic wand, and they walk out completely changed. I always think about young couples who come in and they want to get married. You know, little Lucy Lutheran is dragging in Peter Pagan. And, you know, we get around to talking about uh, the fact that little Lucy Lutheran has been coming to worship for 30 years of her life. And sitting next to her is Peter Pagan, who hasn't darkened the doorway of a church ever. But who says to me, once we get married, I'll be here 
all the time. And I say the same thing to everybody who ever tells me that, good luck. And I sometimes say, I doubt it. Why? Because Peter Pagan has 30 years of not doing it. How long does it take to change a habit? I mean, some people say anywhere between three to four weeks of continuous... I mean, it takes a while. To change your life takes time. We often vacillate between wanting it to happen immediately or not even wanting it to happen at all. See, one day we want to be perfect. The next day, we want to hang on to all of our little favorite sins, whatever they are. But the road to transformation is a road that is traveled one day at a time. One step at a time. I come from a family that's had a a number of alcoholics. I know a little bit about that process. And they will always talk about being sober one day at a time. It's just one more step. It's one more day. That's why they hand out those little medallions. You know, I've been clean and sober for five years or ten years or fifteen years because they know each and every day is one more step. Life of love, life of mercy, a life of transformation. Number four, it's about living a life that goes the distance. Paul begins this letter with a powerful, provocative four-letter word. I don't know if you remembered it, but in verse 3, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Powerful four-letter word. S-T-A-Y. Stay. Now, at the time 1 Timothy was written, Paul and Timothy had worked together for about a dozen years. Timothy had traveled with Paul He had actually traveled for Paul as Paul sent him off to take care of little different things. He sometimes served as Paul's troubleshooter, uh, sometimes sent to take care of problems in places like Corinth or uh, Thessalonica or Philippi. But now he is in Ephesus. He's facing a really tough church. There was a lot of opposition to the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. There was false doctrine being taught in the church. Things that weren't even close to being biblical, if you listen to what uh, Sue read before, uh, things taught based on myths and genealogies and controversial arguments. And there was some confusion about the role that women should play in the church and about the kind of person that you should actually allow to be your pastor. And and here is young Timothy tossed into this, trying to whip it all back together into shape. It's a big job, and Timothy literally spent the rest of his life doing it. According to tradition, uh, Timothy served this church about 30 years, and he was martyred in Ephesus for opposing that temple worship of Diana. Now, when Paul told Timothy to stay, I wonder if it was because Timothy somehow indicated to Paul that he was open to leaving or thinking about leaving. Maybe he thought there was a nicer church down the road that he'd like to be at where people actually kind of liked their pastor instead of always, you know, chewing on him. I really don't know. But I have a feeling Paul told him to stay for a good reason. That's why he said, remain true to your calling, fight the good fight. 
in that little phrase, fight the good fight, uh, Paul is saying it's not always going to be easy. You know, those of you that are steadfast Christians probably have figured this out. It's not always easy to be a Christian in certain places. It's not always easy to live a life of love or mercy or transformation. Because there's always people who want to suck you back in, draw you back in, come back, remember the good old days. No, it's not easy. So you need to be prepared to stay. Bill Hybels, pastors, again, one of the largest churches up in, the, in America near Chicago, and uh, he once said that if he was laying on his deathbed and had the chance to make one final statement for church leaders, it would be this, quote, settle in for the long haul. See, the Christian life is not a summer job. Christian life is not a two-week vacation. It is a lifelong career. That's why when I announced that I was going to retire, someone said, you're leaving the ministry? What? Are you kidding me? You're asking me if I'm going to leave the ministry? I'm not leaving the ministry. The ministry is a lifelong career. be like asking you if you said we're going to transfer our membership to another church. What? You're no longer going to be a Christian? (laughs) You're always a Christian, whether you're in this church or that church or wherever church. How do you settle in for the long haul? Well, I think you commit to some basics. For example, every day I'll spend time in the Word. Every day I'll spend time in prayer. Every day I'll seek to be transformed in holiness somehow. Every day I will consistently pursue one opportunity after another to serve the kingdom of God. Every day I will consistently involve myself in fellowship with other believers. Every day I will give myself to a life of love. I mean, that's how you do it. But did you catch that last little paragraph in the first chapter about two little guys by the name of Hymenaeus and Alexander? Paul makes reference to two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had shipwrecked their faith. That's what it says, shipwrecked their faith and had fallen away. How does that happen? I'm looking at you, John. I know you had an amazing transformation. And I'm not going to ask you to answer, but... You know, I've heard your story before, but how, you know, you have to ask yourself sometimes, how is it that somebody can shipwreck their faith and drift away? Well, you know, the, the answer is, slowly, <laughs> you drift away bit by bit. It happens when we neglect the basics. We no longer get in the Word. We no longer pray. It rarely happens all at once. It's kind of a process of erosion, little by little. That's why we need to settle in for the long haul. Here's my lone Olympic reference in today's sermon. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Prepare to go the distance. See, in becoming an apprentice of Paul, you need to know what you're signing up for. I mean, when you said, I want to be a Christian, what did you sign up for? 
just what this job entails. What does success in the Christian life look like? It's about living a life of love, a life of mercy, a life in pursuit of transformation, and the pursuit of the finish line. All of which God has provided, all of which God gives us the strength to do. And may we all follow those principles in Jesus' name. Amen.